Okay. Hi, everybody. I know it's Saturday night. You're not used to seeing me. I'm here to make up for last Sunday when I had to leave for a medical issue. Let me get this straight out of here. There we go. Give everybody a few minutes if they got the message. I didn't do this till like 4.30. Because I was deciding whether I was going to do it or not. It's going to be here. Just give them a few minutes. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your uh, reading host for the next hour. We're going to be here tomorrow, too. But this is, I was supposed to read part four last Sunday and uh, had to exit for an emergency. So I'm reading what I call part 4.5 today. So I'll read for about an hour. So those of you that missed this read, I have to go back and catch up, I guess. Um, I'm the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. Uh, we're 45, 35, 45 strong up and down the state of California. Hang on a second. Yeah. And uh, that means if you have a paranormal need, yeah, we can get to you almost anywhere in the state. Just about everywhere. So you can get me on Meetup, Facebook. You can get California Haunts Team on Facebook. You can get me on Facebook. Uh, you can get me at CaliforniaHaunts.org. You can get me at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. You can get me at on Twitter under California Haunts. You can get me at TikTok under California Haunts. I also have a, a personal TikTok over there. So you can get me all kinds of ways. If you're watching from Facebook, please... Uh, Please hit the follow button. I, I like having followers. It's fun, it's fun to see the followers. And if you're watching from uh, YouTube, please hit that uh, sub uh, subscription button, which is down in the bottom right-hand corner. It's the little uh, ghost with the magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat. My allergies, you're probably going to hear me breathe. My allergies are bad. It's hot. I'm trying to cool off. I've been in here about an hour. I'm trying to cool off. Uh... The thing is, with the backdrop up, it blocks the air conditioner, so I'm kind of getting a roundabout air, so I'm still kind of sweating. But it's better than noisy, right? But anyway, we get together today for about an hour, and I'm going to read with Lizzie Borden. And I hope, you know, I, you know, we were right at the point with the book, I believe, where Lizzie was, we were like three days away from the crime. And uh, hopefully, I don't want to say that as a bad thing, but hopefully we don't get to the crime today, because I know the Sunday, the Sunday audience is there, you know, comes in because we're at that point when they want to hear about the crime. But unfortunately, I'm making, like I said, I'm making up for last weekend, for last Sunday. And, um, yeah. If I seem a little off, it's because I'm not a big fan of the heat. and It's hot. It's 95 today. It hit 98. It's starting to come down now. But I'm not a huge fan of the heat. It's still, like I said, that the backdrop back here kind of blocks the air, I, I have a through-the-window through air conditioner here, so it's over, like, back and to the right of the backdrop. And so it's not getting the full, I'm not getting the full blast from the AC in here. So it's still, my, my little my little piece of paradise right here is still kind of hot. Anyway, uh, I have an announcement to make, too. Uh, Nancy, the medium Nancy Matz, who comes, who's a regular on the show on Fridays, She'll do readings like every other week, but we're doing a special reading. 
and that's going to be over on Facebook Live, and that's going to be on the 18th at 8 p. at 7 p.m., and that's going to be over at the California Haunts Ghostly Events page that we're going to be going live, and it's a special reading. It's $10 for a five-minute read, and she's doing individual five-minute readings on people, and if you've seen Nancy operate, she can squeeze a lot in five minutes, especially especially a reading. So if you're interested in that, go on over to the California Haunts Ghostly Events page. And click on that, you know, do a like on that page, and then um, you can sign up over there. But that's going to be June 18th at 7 p.m. Pacific, if you guys are interested in any of that. I hope everybody's having a good weekend. You're probably still all out doing your thing. I, I would be. It's a Saturday night. If you're in their right mind, wants to hear a book read to them on a Saturday night, right? If I had something to do, I'd be out doing something Saturday night for this little week for me. In fact, probably starting next weekend, I'll be out in my yard. You know, I'm just about done with my yard stuff. And uh, I'll be hanging out in my little paradise in the back. All right, well, let me open the book, and uh, we'll start reading. And uh, like I said, I'll go an hour, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully some of you are here. And if you're not, I sent notices, so you guys know that I was on, so you can go back and check it out. My little antiquated tablet. It's been a good one, though. I've had it for a long time. It's fallen. I was sitting on top of my car once and fell off. My Samsung... Galaxy Note 8. If you're watching from YouTube, like I said, please uh, please hit that subscribe button. Not all shows are like this. <laughs> uh, I have different types of shows that I think you'll be interested in. Great guests on my regular radio show. <laughs> Not all shows are like this. Okay. For Kindle. Do, 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 do. Okay. It looks like. I must. Okay, so, like I said, we left off kind of in the middle of a chapter, which I don't usually do. And this is leading up to, I think it's, I believe we're three days before. Hang on, let me fix my watch. I believe we are three days before Lizzie. Supposedly does the deed to her mother and father, her mother and her father and stepmother. Okay, so uh, here we go. I think she's at the breakfast table. After several uncomfortable moments, Lizzie set down her cup and said, in quiet, even tones, "I'm quite sure that I have already written to Aunt Mary and expect a reply from her today." The reaction she received from her father. Let me get this fixed was more than she could have hoped for. His slender frame actually flinched and his dark eyes shot across the table at her unveiled anger. He had not known the letter Aunt Mary was at this moment being delivered in Warren. Lizzie rose and left the room. As Andrew and Abby sat there in stunned silence, they heard the opening and closing of the front door. Lizzie walked determinedly along the downward stunning sidewalk toward town. There was a lot to do before the noon meal. That the Swansea deed would be signed over tomorrow, 
at one of her father's banks was a certainty. She had pieced together that much from overheard conversations and glimpses of her father's letters from Uncle John, Vinnick and Morse, found in his Prince Albert coat pocket. Her trips over the past few weeks bore out her suspicions that a horse deal was being put together that involved the upper farm at Swansea, a farm that had been in the Borden family for years. That she and Emma were being kept in the dark meant only one thing. Some business transaction was going on that would take the farm away from their inheritance. Just like the house on 4th Street Andrew had put in Abby's name five years earlier. Like players in a chess game, each of the involved parties moved to outmaneuver the other. Yet Lizzie was always circling, like an omnipresent vulture hovering overhead. Andrew Borden's routine never varied, and in the days and hours leading up to his murder, it was his undoing. He wore the same dark suit and Prince Albert coat, morning, noon, and night, spring through winter. Each morning, he left the house around 9 a.m., unless he was attending to business matters at home. Not only did he deal with tenants from his many commercial holdings, but he also sold some merchandise from his cellar. Large barrels of vinegar were stored in the earthen first cellar room, along with other sundries as they became available. If he could store it, make it, or get a good deal on it, he hoarded goods for sale. Vinegar was always needed for pickling, and his neighbors, including Charles Sawyer, had bought from him. His daily rounds included a stop at the post office, where he mailed letters and picked up the morning's post. Mail was delivered twice daily. Lizzie and Emma often handed him letters to post for them as he left the house each morning. When he returned for the noon and evening meals, he was usually greeted by his daughters, asking if there were any letters for them. The Fall River Post Office and Customs House was a large stone building on Bedford Street, a block over from City Hall and the police station. From the Borden House, it was a mere five to eight minute walk. Market Square, sitting a half block away, would become the scene of, of mass frenzy when the inquest and preliminary hearing into the Borden murders took place. Andrew also picked up a copy of the Providence Journal newspaper, for which he had a subscription. For one cent, you could buy a plain you could buy plain white wrappers, which you would address and leave at the post office for your reserved copy. After the post office, Andrew typically stopped at Pierre Ledoux's, Ledoux's, Ledoux's French, for a shave. It was the only extravagance for which he indulged. Barber shops in the 1800s were a mainstay for businessmen and were rel relatively inexpensive. You could get a haircut for 25 cents and a shave for 10 cents. From there, he would make the rounds of his three banks, stop by the various stores he owned, and often stop to see his property manager, Charles Cook, who had an office in the Andrew J. Borden building on the third floor. Charles C. Cook's primary business was insurance. He had charge of he had charge of the Andrew J. Borden building at the corner of Anawan and South Main Street in Fall River. Andrew entrusted him with collecting rents and acting as a general property manager. It was his custom to visit Charles at least three to four times a week. After Andrew's murder, Charles became the Borden sister's property manager as they inherited their father's many business concerns. According to Mr. Cook, Lizzie had visited his, visited his office several times. She was no stranger to deeds and their overall appearance. Andrew Borden was as close to the Dickens image as Ebenezer Scrooge as Fall River could hope to find. Gaunt, white-whiskered, and dressed habitually in a long black coat and top hat, he walked the blocks near his home with his small notebook and tiny pencil in hand, jotting down figures and overseeing tenants. 
Although he loved his family, his world was one of ciphers and cold hard cash. At 11 in the morning, Andrew typically arrived home. He hung his Prince Albert coat in the dining room closet and laid it over the, or laid it over the arm of the lounge there and donned a smoking jacket he kept hanging on a nail by the kitchen door that leads into the sitting room. If there was business to be conducted, he took care of that from 11 to 12. If there were no transactions to be handled, he would often sit in the living room and read his mail and the, and the Providence Journal. If there was time for a nap, he put on his slippers, kept in the closet of that room, and lay down on the sofa. The key to, this lock, the key to his locked bedroom door was kept on the mantel shelf near the doorway, leading to the kitchen. This was the nature of the board residence. Mind-numbing routine. It rarely varied, and in that house, with interconnecting rooms and without hallways, there was no privacy. Each of the denizens knew each other's patterns. Bridges was especially regimented. In 1890s New England, the chores were done on a daily routine, relegated to each day of the week. Let's see. There we go. Monday was wash day and for hanging out clothes. Tuesday was ironing. Wednesday was mending. Thursday was for scrubbing. And the maids on Sicka Street could all be seen on that day washing windows. Friday was sweeping, which for Bridget only happened every other Friday in the front hallway. Saturday was baking, and the Sabbath afternoon was usually a maid's day off. The predictable timetable gave a person with black motives a distinct advantage. That Lizzie had access to the Prince Albert coat at times when her father was asleep on the sofa or upstairs for a moment was a certainty. Whether he stuffed a letter or two from Uncle John after reading them at the post office into his pocket is unknown. A letter was found in his pocket the day of the murders. Emma recalled her father would burn correspondence, but not business letters. He may have kept them in his desk in his small safe room, in his small safe room adjoining his bedroom. When the safe was opened, under the direction of the district attorney and Marshal Hilliard during the inquest, it contained no letters. They found deeds, business papers, and bank statements, but not the hoped for will or letters. Perhaps not dreaming one of his daughters would rifle through his coat pockets. He may have put, a, put off the trip an occasion to the, on occasion to the hot upper floor after returning home for lunch to put important letters away. He would be going out again after dinner, which was lunch, and there would be a second post to collect in the afternoon. As Andrew Borden made his rounds about town that Tuesday morning, Bridget was hanging the family's clothes in the backyard, a day late due to Monday's rain. Abby was alerting her sister that she could babysit little Abby on Thursday after all, as they were canceling their plans for the farm, and Uncle John was scurrying, was scurrying around Westport and Fairhaven, trying to come up with a plan B now that Lizzie was back home and watching like a hawk from its eerie. Sometime that day, word reached Andrew that over at the two Swansea farms, Mr. Eddie and Alfred Johnson, the Swede, had been taken suddenly ill. Lizzie, meanwhile, had taken the train to New Bedford, a mere 30-minute ride. The morning sun baked down on the shoppers as Lizzie hurried to meet the man who would help her with her plan. If she kept asking for poisons, people were bound to become suspicious. Yet, she had so little time. The plan she had hatched for poisoning the milk at the Swansea farm had been sound. She could use it again, now at home, as poison found in the milk would point to someone outside the house, an enemy. 
Each morning, the milk from the farm was left in a can on the side porch around 4.30. Bridget brought it in and poured it into, ma into manageable milk bottles that were kept in the icebox. She then rinsed out the pail and left it on the porch to be replaced the next day with a different can of fresh milk. But the hatchet, that had to change. She had planned the use of the old one in the barn at the Swansea house, making it look like a weapon of convenience to the murder picked up. She couldn't do that now. And she couldn't use one from the board and cellar. It had to be from outside the house. She would have to get a new one. Arsenic could be found in several over-the-counter products. Rough on rats was something she had read about. The white powder resembled flour. Perhaps a dusting on the bread, like the bakers did. It also came in crystals, like the painter used. That could be placed in milk. But arsenic poisoning wasn't a fast-acting method. Lizzie stepped into the drugstores of E.E. E. Wright in New Bedford and boldly asked for prussic acid. She was prepared for the usual speech, and she received it. It was denied her. She left the store in a mood that mirrored the summer heat, as the city and her thoughts spun around her. She would have to settle for arsenic, even if she had to steal it. It had to look like an intruder. A maniac. No one would think to look for poison after seeing them hacked to death. But rather than risk being caught, she brought in her new accomplice from Fairhaven. Now, I want to make a note though, a little while back for you guys that are tuning in that don't remember or are tuning in for the first time. i got to move this a little bit too. Just hang on with me for one second. Okay. She had, she had put drugs in the milk at the farmhouse. And if you notice in the first couple uh, pages of this, it said that two, that, that two people at the farmhouse were now sick. I will add that in. A few minutes later, a Portuguese entered Gilman and Vincent's hardware store in New Bedford. He spent some time with the axes and hatchets at one point of the counters. Finally, he selected a small shingling hatchet with a three and a half inch blade and carried it to the counter. The shiny new hatchet with a gold gilt emblem stamped upon it glinted in the store light. Mr. Vincent studied the man. He was obviously a laborer from somewhere. He casually asked where the man worked, and he said the Davis Farm in Dartmouth, in broken English. The store owner rang up the sale, along with a box of rat poison, which was a typical purchase by farmers and their employees. The man paid him in cash. The proprietor wrapped the hatchet carefully in several layers of white paper and tied the package with twine. The foreigner picked up his purchases and exited the store, disappearing from view into the crush of shoppers. Minutes before entering the hardware store, the Portuguese stopped in the drugstore. He bought a soda and some candy, then loitered near the front door. The store owner was watching him. He was at the front of the store, sipping his soda and looking out the window for the lady he was to meet. He glanced up and down the crowded sidewalk, then feeling the store owner's eyes on him, opened the door and walked out. His errand accomplished, he handed over to the lady the packages from Gilman's. He stepped into an alley, reached into his pocket, and counted his cash. He may not be able to read, but he knew money. It had been the easiest work he had ever done. She had asked him only one question about his purchase in the hardware store. Did you mention the Davis Farm from South, in, in, in South Dartmouth? He had forgotten to say South, but he nodded in the affirmative anyway. There would be more money if he kept his errands for the lady quiet. It all sounded fine to him. Lizzie cradled her satchel in her lap as the train headed back to Fall River, a white package tied in twine, peeking from its depths. 
a small box rested next to it. She would kill them tonight. She would drop a quick note to her aunt when she reached Fall River. The town called clock struck at 11 a.m. Andrew Borden hastened to finish his rounds and go home. His head was down, the sidewalk absorbed cracks and debris. His thoughts tumbled like maniac acrobats in his tired mind. A pair of shoes appeared suddenly and he stopped. One of his associates stood before him smiling. I thought you were spending the summer at the farm, the man said. He noticed his friend was uncharacteristically agitated. His face creased with tension. No, Andrew blurted out, contrary to his private nature. I have had so much difficulty in my family, I have not felt like going away. Suddenly, embarrassed at his lack of propriety, he merely tipped his hat and hurried up the street, the man staring after him. Andrew entered his home through the side door. Bridget unlatched it for him, and he returned to, and then returned to her cooking. The cloying smell of fried swordfish hung in the air. A loaf of baker's bread, a soft dusting of flour coating the golden surface, rested on the kitchen table. After changing from his Prince Albert to a smoking jacket, Andrew sat in the sitting room near an open window in his large armchair, slid the mailing wrapper from the Providence Journal, and snapped the pages open. But his mind would not focus on the, on the black ink before him. Abby entered and sat near him in the rocking chair. Their conversation was in hushed whispers. Lizzie surprised her father and stepmother by once again joining them at the table for dinner. Lizzie placed her napkin in her lap and poured herself a cup of tea. She glanced at the pitcher of cold milk sitting at the center of the table, droplets of condensation running down its glass. Abby and Andrew filled their plates with, dried, with fried swordfish and large slices of toasted baker's bread. Andrew reached from the milk pitcher and poured the liquid all over his toast. Bridget had just entered the room to set the cakes and cookies on the table and departed, not noticing if Abby also drenched the bread and cake and milk, as was the New England custom. She returned, placing a plate of some bread she had made herself on the table in case they ran out. Lizzie nibbled at her fish, watching the actions of her parents serendipitously. They gobbled their food and made light conversation, obviously nervous to suddenly have so much of Lizzie's unexpected company. Andrew mentioned that there was sickness over at the farm. Lizzie cast a quick glance at him. Comments on the weather, some store sales, and other innocuous conversation filled the noonday mealtime. Abby rang the bell, signifying to Bridget that they were finished. The three rose, Lizzie going upstairs to her room, and Andrew and Abby retiring to the sitting room. Once they heard Lizzie's footsteps overhead in the bedroom, they began talking. A small puff of brick dust fell silently inside the sitting room fireplace. Tuesday night supper was to be a repeat of dinner, warmed over swordfish with baker's bread, cakes, cookies, and tea. Bridget, noticing the bread was nearly gone, donned the shawl, the shawl I'm sorry, that hung on the peg in the back entry. Her soft, her, her soft, let's see, her soft felt hat, that's it, and headed over to the bakery on, on Borden Street, a block away. The smell of baking bread and cake filled her nostrils as she opened the door of the shop, a small bell tinkling overhead. She asked for dinner rolls, but was told they were out. She settled for another loaf of flour bread, paid them five cents, and headed back with her bundle. The maid hurried along Borden Street with her purchase. The cicadas were loud. They nearly drowned out the carts and horses that passed her along the way. Lizzie heard their evening song as well through the screen door as she hurriedly opened the icebox nestled in a closet nearby in the old sink room. 
She filled the remaining bottles containing Tuesday's milk with a white powder and swirled it around. She had barely finished and was leaving the sink room when Abby entered the kitchen from the dining room. Lizzie barely glanced at her as she headed back to her room. Bridget entered the side yard and closed the gate behind her. Abby met her at the screen door as she climbed the side steps and reached for the handle. Did you get dinner rolls? Abby asked. No, ma'am, Bridget said in her thick Irish accent. They, they was out of them. I got a loaf of baker's bread. Abby handed her five cents to replace the change Bridget had spent for the bread from her own money. The young servant went back to preparing the evening meal, this time setting three plates at the table as it appeared Lizzie had taken a sudden fancy eating with the old folks. Something. She and Emma really did. Maybe there would be some peace around here, Bridget thought. Maybe she's going to try to get along. Maybe she just misses Miss Emma. Bridget Sullivan was a 26-year-old Irish immigrant who had worked for the Borders for two years and nine months. She was, she was a pretty woman with thick, dark hair, a full figure, and at times a temper, which flared up occasionally during the late murder trials and inquisitions. An Irish Catholic, she was steeped, excuse me, there we go. She was steeped in her religious traditions and believed flagrant lying could send you to hell. Lying by omission, however, might let her squeak by. Her duties at the Bordens were light compared to the usual chores required of a maid. When Attorney Knowlton questioned her during the preliminary hearing after the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden, he asked her the following. Knowlton, what were your duties? Well, I'd done the washing, ironing, and cooking. Question, anything else besides that? Answer, a little sweeping the struggle. I'm sorry, a little sweeping. Hang on one second. I just... A little sweeping and scrubbing. Question. Which part of the house did you have the sweeping of? I had the front hall to do. The front entry. What days did you sweep the front hall? Every other week. Friday. Did you have any care of the beds? No, sir. Question. None of them at all? Answer. No, sir. Question. Did you have any duties, if any, in any of the bedrooms upstairs? Answer. No, sir. Bridget brought in the dishes of swordfish, bread cakes, and cookies and set them in front of the three silent members of, comprising the Borden's household. Emma Borden, Lizzie's older sister, was still away on vacation in Fairhaven. Lizzie watched as Andrew's afternoon ritual of soaking his toasted milk was repeated. The baker's bread and Bridget's homemade loaf were liberally doused until there remained very little milk in the pitcher. Abby had only eaten the cakes and bread, foregoing the fish. Lizzie watched their faces closely looking for any changes in their behavior or countenance. Abby rang the bell for Bridget, and she and Andrew once again removed the, sitting, removed the sitting room for their evening conversation. Bridget sat down in Andrew's chair and had her dinner. Lizzie angrily climbed the front stairs. She entered her room and sat on the edge of the bed. She could hear the soft murmuring of their voices coming from her fireplace, but it did not matter now what they were saying. If it all went well, they would be dead by morning. Surely the arsenic would show some effect soon. She glanced at her small, packed valise she would take to the war she would take to Warren in the morning early for her visit to Aunt Mary Morse. Word would get her Oh hang on a second. There we go. Yeah. Word would get her to Sorry, I got messed up. Word would get her to in Warren. That okay. Okay. Word would get her to in Warren that her parents had been tragically murdered. There would be no trip to Marion. Emma Borden sat in the cozy parlor of her dear friend Helen Brano. The briny smell of ocean water wafted through 
the open windows and fluttered the lace curtains in, in the rhythmic dance of moonlight. She had not felt so peaceful in a long time. Here, she was away from the constant drama her younger sister insisted upon creating. She was finally away from the tension and pretense. She shared no affection for her stepmother, Abby, and the strain of maintaining a civil fa facade was draining. At 42 years old, Emma had given up any hope of marriage and creating a family of her own. She had an angular face with a prominent nose, warm eyes, and wavy dark hair pulled back severely into a bun. Where Lizzie was big-boned and wide-shouldered, Emma was ramrod straight, slender, and unremarkable. She wished only to live her life in peace, enjoying close friends and life's pleasure, life's simple pleasures. Ironically, as she sat there revering her escape from her unhappy home, she was handed a letter by Helen's mother. She recognized her sister's familiar scrawl. The glow faded. Now what? She was already aware Lizzie had canceled her trip to marry into vacation at the seaside cottage with her friend, Dr. Handy. She stayed in New Bedford for five days, doing Lord knew what. With trepidation, Emma read the lines written on the expensive stationery, and a feeling of dread overtook her. Helen, noticing her friend's sudden change of power, asked what was wrong. Emma handed her Lizzie's note and watched for her friend's reaction to the words. Helen looked up in confusion. What did it mean? A strange man running around the Borden property at night. Trying the side door, darting into the backyard, their father having angry words with him, and with visitors to the house, enemies, predictions of doom, Emma felt a sudden wave of panic. Something was wrong. Something was very wrong. The city hall clock in downtown Fall River struck nine bells. From its perch, only a couple of blocks away from the Borden residence, the sound of the hourly alert was deep and, and, and sonorous. Lizzie lay on her bed in the ensuing shadows and listened for sounds coming from the sitting room below, where her parents were talking. She could hear the low tones of Andrew's deep voice, followed by the soft replies of Abby. Lizzie's heart was racing. Why weren't they showing signs of the poisoning? Had she not put in enough? Minutes later, she heard them enter the bedroom next to hers. The sound of creaking bed springs came to her as they climbed around the old mattress. Minutes passed. Suddenly, the sound of retching came to her through their closed bedroom door, directly behind her, her headboard. Her pulse raced, and she held her breath. Would they die? The reality of it hit her hard in the face. It was one thing to plan a murder. It was another to hear your victims in their death throes. Abby and Andrew were both vomiting now. Exclamations of pain filling their brief reprieves. Lizzie's heart was pounding. The noises from the street irritated her as she strained to hear what was happening in the room beside hers. She suddenly thought of Bridget, whose room was in the attic. If she heard them vomiting, she would come to check on them and wonder why Lizzie wasn't. Pulling on her robe, she pulled aside the red portiere hanging on the back of her bed and tapped on the door separating their bedrooms. She called out, asking if they were all right. A bolt sliding back sounded and Andrew opened the door. The smell of sickness assaulted her nostrils as she felt her stomach lurch in response. What's wrong? Lizzie asked them. Abby was cradling a slop pail, several towels lying next to the... Okay, sorry. Abby was cradling a slop pail, several towels lying next to her on the floor. Can I do anything for you? Her father said simply no. Lizzie heard a renewed binge of vomiting from Abby's direction. Swallowing the bile rising in her throat, Lizzie managed to say she was sick as well and would be lying down on her bed if they needed her. She lay there in the darkness, the sounds of their pain coming through the thin wall separating the two rooms. 
It dragged on for hours. Nervous excitement turned to anger. As the sounds of, of, of sickness were still going on, as the town hall clock struck midnight. It was at this time that Lizzie mimicked their sounds of retching, realizing she would need to look like a victim as well. Sometime during the wee morning hours of Wednesday, August 3rd, the house became quiet. Chapter 9, August 3rd, 1892. The pale sunlight of early morning streaked across the floral carpeting and the white counterpane and the white counterpane bedspread. Lizzie was seated at her writing desk, penning a note to her Aunt Mary. She wouldn't be coming after all, as they were all taken ill. She angrily stuffed the letter into her purse, with the Swansea deal going through. She had to stay here and figure out a way to stop them from going forward with it. Excuse me. If the poison had worked, the plan was to kill them with the new hatchet early Wednesday morning before Bridget rose. Lizzie would take the key from the sitting room mantel, enter their room, find them dead from the poisoning, and attack them with the blade, making it look like a madman had come in the morning when the house was quiet and killed them. She planned to be on her way to her Aunt Mary before Bridget was up, leaving the front door spring-locked, not quite latched. No one would suspect her. A Borden and a Christian woman of committing such a heinous act. But, as she discovered, when the first rays of sunlight pierced the lace curtains of her bedroom, they were still alive. She heard them coughing. Murmurings came from the bedroom next to hers. They were awake. She glanced at her sister's empty bedroom that connected to her own and felt a sudden pang. She missed Emma. She needed her to lean on right now. But Emma would not have approved of the mission that Lizzie was on. Not at all. At least not all of it anyway. Lizzie opened her bedroom door leading out to the second floor landing. She paused and listened. The faint sound of the stove fire doors, the faint sound of the, the, the faint sound of the stove fire door being opened and closed came to her. She could hear Bridget setting out her pans and feeding wood into the heavy black oven. She could picture her setting out her supplies, pushing her bangs from her forehead as she moved about the kitchen. Bridget looked up in surprise as Lizzie walked through the room. The girl was usually not down before nine. The maid glanced at the kitchen clock. It wasn't even seven. Mr. and Mrs. Borden had come down earlier and were in the sitting room. Bridget noticed that they did not look well. Mrs. Borden said they had all been sick throughout the night. Attorney Knowlton questioned Bridget during her preliminary hearing for the Borden murder case about that morning. Knowlton. These people had been sick, had they not? Bridget. Yes, sir. Knowlton. Mr. and Mrs. Borden had been sick, and Miss Lizzie had been taking care of them and had been sick herself. Bridget. That is what they said. Knowlton. She looked sick, did she? Bridget, I did not notice. She told me she was sick that morning. Knowlton, Wednesday morning? Yes, sir. It was the night before Mr. and Mrs. Borden were ill. Did you did you hear them up around? Bridget, no, sir. Knowlton, Miss Lizzie's was right next to theirs. Her room opened to their room? Yeah, Bridget, yes, sir. Knowlton, they were vomiting? Bridget, yes, sir. That is what they said. Knowlton. Mrs. Borden said she was sick or had been taken sick that night and was sick nearly all night? Bridget, yes, sir. Knowlton, did they all come down to breakfast? Bridget, yes, sir. Knowlton, what did they have for breakfast? Bridget, pork steak and Johnny cakes and coffee. Lizzie, <clears throat> Lizzie glanced at the pork steak sizzling in the skillet. The grease sputtering and popped. It could have been any Wednesday morning 
in the Borden home, except Andrew Borden was lying prostrate on the sitting room lounge, his stomach roiling from the smells coming from the kitchen on the, on the other side of the door. His arm was bent and flung across his pale face, his upper lip pebbled with perspiration. Abby was halfway laying in the big overstuffed chair across from him, wringing her hands and talking some nonsense about being poisoned. Andrew was in no mood for it today. He had more serious matters to deal with. As soon as he could muster, he had to get downtown. Bridget asked Lizzie if she was also real sick the night before. She did not look anything like Abby, who was pale. She admitted she, she was, and that she had tried to help her father and stepmother. Lizzie would later report she, was, she, she too was vomiting around midnight. As Bridget busied herself in the kitchen, Lizzie crept to the back stairs leading to the attic. She caught sight of the empty milk can sitting on the floor of the sink room as she passed by. Bridget had already rinsed it out after emptying Wednesday's milk into the bottles. Another plan that had not worked. Well, Lizzie had not given up. The bank deal was today. She doubted they would still go. They were both still very ill. But just in case, she had to hurry. The attic was already warm. For the first time, Lizzie felt sorry for Bridget. Her room was just ahead of her at the top of the attic stairs. The main withered up here in the summer months and froze during the winter when the door atop the attic stairs was usually closed to keep the heat trapped below. Bridget had always seemed like a fixture to Lizzie, one whose purpose was to serve, no more important than the last maid, Maggie. Yet for one moment, Lizzie felt empathy for her. Lizzie stepped out into the large attic area and hurried to the locked door of one of the storage rooms. Unlocking it, she entered the side of the room with the chimney. The room was filled with trunks, crates, and seasonal clothing. She headed for a row of hanging bags. Taking one down, she removed a sealskin cape. Draping it over her arm, she left the room, relocking the door. Her timing was perfect. As she descended the back stairs, Bridget was in the dining room, setting out the pork steak, johnny cakes, and coffee. Her father and Abby were settling in, uncertainly, to the breakfast before them. Lizzie walked quietly through the sitting room and passed the open dining room door. Keeping the cape hidden from their view, she hurried into the front entry and up to her room. She left the cape and returned to the breakfast table. The unhappy threesome nibbled dubiously at the breakfast, thoughts of poison running through Abby's mind. Gratefully, she saw no baker's bread or shirtcakes present at the table. When Bridget entered the dining room to have her own meal, she found plenty of leftover food. Abby and Andrew headed back to the sitting room, where Andrew once again lay down on the sofa. Abby made him as comfortable as she could, and then headed down the, down the entry to the front door. Where are you going, Andrew asked feebly. I'm going for Bowen, Abby said determinedly. Perhaps their family physician, Dr. Seabury Bowen, would believe that they were being poisoned, even if Andrew would not. My money shan't pay for it, he hollered angrily, as his wife's stout form disappeared out the front door. Abby waddled across the street, her face covered in perspiration from the heat, the sudden exertion, and the illness. She stepped to the second door of the, of the Southard Miller home that Dr. Bourne and his wife Phoebe shared. So, Southard Miller was Phoebe's father, and she and her husband had set up a home and a doctor's practice in the second half of the large house, just catty corner from the Bordens. Attorney Hosea Knowlton questioning Dr. Bowen on the stand during the coroner's inquest. Knowlton. You had not been called that week to the family? Bowen, no, sir. I had not been called over to see them. The day before the murders. Wednesday morning, about 8 o'clock or before 8, 
Mrs. Borden came to the door and said she was frightened that, and that she was afraid she was poisoned. I told her to come in. She sat down and she said the night before, about nine o'clock, she and her husband commenced to vomit and vomit, vomited for two or three hours until twelve. I understood. I asked her what she had eaten for supper and she told me. She said she had eaten some baker's white bread and she had heard of baker's cream cakes being poisonous and was afraid there was something poisonous in the bread that made her vomit. She said she only ate, ate cake and baker's white bread. At that time, she had a sort of an eructation of vomiting slightly. I was afraid she was going to vomit there. I rather got ready for her. I told her to go home and I told her what to take, and she took it. Knowlton, do you recollect what it was you prescribed for her? Bowen, I told her to take some castor oil and take it with a little port wine to take the taste off, and probably that would be all she would want. I think immediately after breakfast, I thought they were neighbors. I thought they were neighbors. I, I would just go over. Before that, she said Lizzie came down. He heard them vomiting. I think she was in the next room, and she was up too. And she commenced to vomit at that time, about twelve. I thought if they did not call me, I would go over and make a friendly call. I went over after breakfast. I think Bridget let me in. I'm sure it was the front door, I said. I says, Mrs. Borden, what time is the matter? What is the matter? He looked at me. I'm sorry, Mr. Borden, what is the matter? He looked at me and wanted to know if anybody had sent for me. I told him no. Mrs. Borden was over. I thought I would just come over and see. He seemed well enough then. He said he felt a little heavy and did not feel just right, but said he did not think he needed any medicine. I did not urge him at all, of course, and I went home. I did not think much about it. I saw Mr. Borden out two or three hours afterwards. When I went in, I saw Lizzie run up the stairs. Mrs. Borden I did not see, because I had seen her before. Where did you afterwards see Mr. Borden? Bowen. I saw him Wednesday, walking along between the side door and the gate. Lizzie, I saw walking up the street, and I concluded they were all right. It was later determined that it was actually Dr. Bowen's wife, Phoebe, who had seen Lizzie and Andrew Borden leaving their home that day. Phoebe Bowen said she saw Lizzie leave a little after 6 p.m. in the evening and heading down the street. She was sure of the time, as it was just after the Bowen family was finishing supper. Why Dr. Bourne took credit for the sightings is not known. Unless he wanted to keep his excitable wife out of the murder case spotlight, or Lizzie had left the house twice that day. Mrs. Bowen was called to testify anyway. Andrew Bourne rallied enough to get dressed in the same black suit and Prince Albert coat and head down town or down street about eleven o'clock. He stopped into the building named for him and collected the rent checks from Charles Cook. It is probable that he left his deathbed to do more than pick up a check he could have easily gotten the next morning, just before he deposited in the bank. And maybe he was telling Mr. Cook that the deed transfer would have to go forward tomorrow, as they were all sick. He may have also tried to reach John Morse. Abby was lying down. Bridget was in her room, washing some windows to get a head start on the next day's work schedule. And Andrew was downtown. Lizzie seized the opportunity to grab the cape and slipped from the house. She walked quickly up the street to a drugstore she did not frequent, as it was in the wrong part of town, for someone with her name and aspirations. She made a beeline for Dr. Smith's drugstore at the corner of Sprint and Columbia Streets, only a few blocks from her home. It's interesting here to note that in Dr. Bowen's testimony, 
He said he saw Lizzie walking up the street Wednesday while his wife reported seeing her at 6 o'clock walking down the street. Is it possible that they both saw Lizzie at different times? Second Street sloped down toward the city hub. The term down street was always used when someone was headed that way. When Phoebe saw Lizzie at 6 o'clock, she was supposedly heading for Alice Russell's, whose home was down one street and over on Borden. A certain drugstore, however, was up the street from the Borden house. The prosecution later brought it up to Dr. Bowen. The shop bell tinkled as Lizzie Borden entered Dr. Smith's drugstore. The atmosphere was a laid-back, lazy afternoon of August temperatures. Outside, the clouds hung gray and threatening. A fan buzzed softly. A store clerk, Frederick B. Hart, looked out through the colored bottles that filled the storefront window and idly watched the traffic go by. He glanced at the woman in dark clothing, who was making her way to the counters at the back of the store, without taking special notice of her. She had something draped over her arm that looked like a cape or a sack. It was not until the young woman asked for something unusual that the employees at Dr. Smith took notice. I would like to buy 10 cents worth of prussic acid, she said, in a rather tremulous voice. I needed to clean a sealskin cape. The still air in the store seemed to vibrate from her words. The employee behind the counter, Frank H. Kilroy, seemed relieved when Eli Bentz, the head clerk, stepped over to offer her assistance. I'm sorry, Ellie Bentz. She repeated the request. There was something in her manner, strange eyes, and guttural tone that struck with him. We do not sell prussic acid without a doctor's prescription, he said. I need, I need it to put on the edge of a sealskin cape, she said emphatically, as a way to sidestep its medical requirement. I cannot sell it to you without a doctor's prescription, he reiterated. It's very dangerous, and we do not sell it. I have purchased it before, she said undaunted. When the clerk stood firm, she turned haughtily and exited the store. That's Miss Borden, Frank Kilroy said, as they watched the woman disappear down the street. Bridget came down from her room about half past eleven and was surprised to see Lizzie standing in the kitchen. Not only was the girl eating meals regularly with Mr. and Mrs. Borden for a change, she was actually early for the noon meal. Bridget took down her pots and set them on the stove. She checked the fire and found it low. With a sigh, she headed down cellar for a hot of coal. Just then, Andrew arrived at the side of the door. Bridget left Lizzie sitting in a large overstuffed chair by the small kitchen table and hurried to unhook the screen door. He entered with a curt greeting, his face pale and sickly, and walked into the dining room where he laid his Prince Albert over the lounge arm. He settled in the sitting room. Bridget's lunch, a mutton soup, broiled mutton cakes, cookies, and tea was placed on the dining room table. Once again, Lizzie and her parents ate in tense silence. Andrew's stomach felt as though it would betray him with each bite. Abby appeared to be faring a little better, although she nibbled cautiously at the fare. She asked Bridget to serve Mr. Borden the Garfield tea she had prepared for him, and Andrew drank it, his face pinched in revulsion at the taste. The castor oil had been bad enough. Lizzie left the table and barely touching her food and climbed the curved staircase to her room. Locking her door, she collapsed into the, onto the lounge. What would she do now? She managed to doze off, last night's vigil catching up to her. It wasn't until she heard voices in the sitting room below 
as she realized John Morse was in the house. Her pulse quickened. He had come to help facilitate the Swan. He had come help facilitate the, the Swansea deed transaction. She'd listened through the pipe set into the fireplace opening until her voices annoyed her. Finally, she replaced the brick and, with panic filling her chest, formed a plan. Attorney Knowlton, during the inquest, testi- testimony of John Morse. Knowlton, who did you see when you got there at noon? John actually arrived at the Borden house at 1.30 p.m. after taking the 12.35 train from New Bedford. Morse, the servant girl, Bridget let him in the back door. I asked if Mr. Borden was at home or Andrew. I don't know which. She said he was on the lounge. I went in. He got up. He asked if I'd been to dinner, lunch. I said I had not, but he was not hungry at all, Mr. Borden said. Mrs. Borden said. We just have dinner. We, we just have, we have just had dinner a little while ago. It is all warm. I will put it on. She did in the dining room. I sat down and ate, and we went back to the sitting room and chatted until about three or four. I was going to Swansea. I came over to Kirby's stable, hired a horse and buggy, and went over to Swansea. Kirby's stable was located at 13 Rock Street and was owned by Charles T. Kirby, probably related to Stephen P. Kirby, John's close friend and a possible relative. There were two livery stables within steps of the Borden's house on 2nd Street, yet John chose to walk several blocks to Rock Street to hire a horse and buggy. Knowlton, with Mr. Borden? Morris, no, sir. I asked him to go. He said he didn't feel able to. They were indisposed, all of them that day. Knowlton, and the daughter. Morse, yes. Mrs. Borden said they had been sick. Knowlton, who did you see at the farm? Morse, an American, Frank Eddy. I saw what I supposed to be his wife. I never was acquainted with her. Knowlton, any other farmhands? Morse, no, sir. Knowlton, stay, stay to supper over there? Morse, no, sir. I ate supper at William Vinicum's a little beyond there. Knowlton, in Warren? Morse, no, in Swansea. Knowlton, got back home, Morden's house, about what time? Morse, I got back to the house probably quarter to nine, not far from that, after dark. Knowlton, during preliminary hearing, August 23, 1892. Knowlton, did you see Mr. Eddy when you were over at the farm that night? Before the murders. Morris, I did. Knowlton, did you give him any message from Mr. Borden? Morris, no, sir. Morris, no, sir. There was one thing I forgot. I got some eggs from there for Mr. Borden. That's all. Knowlton, for him? Yes, sir. Mr. Frank had his interview with Detective George of Seaver on Thursday, August 11, 1892, before the start of the final day of the inquest testimony. Detective Seaver, early Thursday morning, August 11th, went to, Luth- went to Luther's Corner, Swansea, with Dr. With Marshal Hilliard to the farm of the late Andrew J. Borden and had an interview with Frederick Frank Eddy and Alfred C. Johnson, who had been employed on that, on that place, Mr. Eddy 16 years and Johnson for nine. The Fall River Herald, on the day of the murder, stated, The only Portuguese employed on the upper farm is Mr. Johnson, and he is confined to his bed by illness. An attempt was made to try and reach Swansea by telephone, but no answer was received. Alfred Johnson was a Swede. The term Portuguese was a catch-all term for many immigrant ethnicities. 
Also notice a phone at the farm is mentioned. Seaver continues, Frederick Eddy made the following statement. John V. Morris came over to his house Wednesday evening, August 3rd, between 7 and 8 o'clock. He drove a horse in top buggy, said it was, sta said it was a stable team. He came into the house and, and, br and brought a rattan basket, took out three pears, and laid them on the table. Said he brought them over from the Borden house. He said Mr. Borden sent him over to see how I was and get the eggs. Said Mr. Borden was coming with him, but he, his wife, and Lizzie were all taken sick last night, and he couldn't come. He said he stopped the supper to Mr. Vinicum's, who lives a short distance from here. I said to him, after we got his eggs, how about the oxen Mr. Davis of South Dartmouth was said to have use of? I am going back and see Mr. Borden, and I think we will make arrangements to get them back over Saturday morning, was the reply. Mr. Morris stayed here 10 or 15 minutes since the hearing of the murder. Since hearing of the murder, it has seemed to me a singular coincidence that he should have come over that night for the eggs. For had he not, I should have taken the train and gone to Mr. Borden's Thursday morning, the day of the murders, arriving at the house about a quarter of eleven or eleven. Alice Manley Russell was a woman who had seen her share of disappointment. She was considered a spinster at the age of 42. Though closer to Emma's age, she was friends with both the Borden sisters, having known them for 11 years in 1892. Alice's father, Frederick W. Russell, died in 1878, leaving Alice and her mother, Judith Manley Russell, on their own. Her mother was a respected nurse and was able to move herself and Alice into the home next to the Bordens at 96 Second Street. One they shared, this home was one they shared with John B. Chase, a quintessal entrepreneur with talents such as florist, paper hanger, and music teacher. Alice and her mother lived there until October 1890, only eight months before the daylight burglary at the Borden's next door. The house at 96 Second Street had made headlines in 1848 when a tragedy that would give the Borden murders a run for its money occurred there. Fall River Weekly News, May 14, 1848. The second wife of Lodewick Borden, the former Elizabeth Darling, an aunt to Andrew J. Borden, who resided in the house on 2nd Street, later occupied by Dr. Kelly and Alice Russell before him, took her two youngest children, six-month-old Holder, a three-year-old three Eliza, went down to cellar and drowned them in the cistern. Then, slipping behind the chimney, cut her own throat with a razor and died almost instantly. A contemporary diarist noted that Eliza had been considered a little out of her head for a few days past. She was left alone in the house with the children, her maid having stepped out on the draw of a pail of water, or out to draw a pail of water, I apologize. And at the time, Eliza committed the lamentable deed in a paroxysm of insanity. The only one to be spared from being a victim of her mother's demented act was the couple's eldest child, Maria. Once the tragedy was discovered, it was said that a great excitement prevailed in town. It is interesting to note that in both the Borden's murders, one at 92 Second Street and the other next door at 96, a maid was outside to draw the pail of water. While Abby Borden was being murdered in her upstairs guest chamber, her maid, Bridget, was filling a pail to wash the exterior windows. During the trials after the, after the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden, an insanity defense was considered for Lizzie. 
the connection between her and Eliza Borden was looked at to see if a strain of madness ran in the Borden family. As Eliza was a darling and only married a Borden, the bloodline theory fizzled out. On the evening of Wednesday, August 3rd, 1892, only 14 and one-half hours before the brutal murder of Abby Borden, Lizzie arrived on the doorstep of Alice Russell. The evening was cooler, a mile 66 degrees, overcast, with a slight wind coming off the water. The smell of baked goods from the bakery next door wafted on the night breeze. Alice admitted it to her guest, and they sat down in the small parlor. Alice had moved to the boarding house at 33 Borden, Borden Street only a little over a only a little over a year earlier. She testified at trial that her new home was only 300 yards from the Borden house. Her mother had moved to Maple Street and continued working as a nurse. Alice was employed as a bookkeeper for the Leander D. Wilbur and Company clothing store at the corner of South Main and Pleasant Streets, a short walk from her home. Alice noticed the strange frenetic movements of her guests as she poured teas and made polite conversation. Lizzie looked tired, strained, and keyed up. According to Alice's superior court testimony a year later, when Lizzie, when she, Lizzie, came in, she said, I have taken your advice and I have written to Marion that I will come. I don't know what, what came in between. I don't know as this followed the, that. But I said, I am glad you are going, as I had urged you to go before. Lizzie, obviously, at some time, told Alice about her misgivings for going on the trip. I said something about her having a good time, and she said, well, I don't know. I feel depressed. I feel as if something was hanging over me that I cannot throw off. And it comes over me at times, no matter where I am, she said. And she says, when I was at the table the other day, when I was at Marion, the girls were laughing and talking and having a good time, and this feeling came over me. And one of them spoke and said, Lizzie, why don't you talk? I don't know what was said after that. I don't remember any more conversation about Marion. Whether there was or not, I don't remember. Much has been said about this conversation and Lizzie's cryptic statements. Some Borden scholars see her words to Alice as a cry for help. Depression moves that come over her. And even lapses in memory. Depression, sorry, moods that come over her. And even lapses in memory. Two, where entire conversations are forgotten, are presented. It very well could have been the desperate attempt of a woman with murder in mind, hoping her close friend would see her struggle and help her before she did something irrevocable. Or was it more? A possible precursor to an insanity plea? People suffering from depression, as those who struggle with bipolar disorder, will sometimes act out in rage and claim they have no memory of the event or only a hazy, segmented reality of it. Time in a mental facility, should she be found guilty, was preferable to hanging. As her conversation with Alice continues, she switches gears, perhaps realizing Alice is not picking up on the need to rescue her and moves into the father has an enemy mode. Miss Russell continued her retelling of Wednesday night's conversation with Lizzie. I suppose it was followed right after that. When she spoke, she says, I don't know, father has so much trouble. Oh, I'm a little ahead of the story, she said. Mr. and Mrs. Borden were awfully sick last night. And I said, why? What's the matter? Was, something they, was it something they have eaten? She said, we were all sick, all but Maggie. 
And I said, something you think you have eaten? She said, we don't know. We had some baker's bread and all of us ate it, but Maggie and Maggie wasn't sick. And I said, well, it couldn't have been the bread. If it had been the baker's bread, I should suppose other people would be sick. And I haven't heard of anybody. And she says, that is so. And she says, sometimes I think our milk might be poisoned. And I said, well, how do you get your milk? How could it be poisoned? And she said, we have the milk come in the can and set it on the step, and we have an empty can. They put out the empty can overnight, and the next morning, when they bring the can, when they bring the milk, they take the empty can. And I said, well, if they put anything in the can, the farmer would see it. And then I said, I added, and then I said, I asked her what time the milk came, if she knew. She said, I think about four o'clock. And I said, well, let's light it for, excuse me. I shouldn't think anybody would dare to come then and tamper with the cans for fear. Somebody would see them. And she said, I shouldn't think so. And she said, they were awfully sick and I wasn't sick. I didn't vomit, but I heard them vomiting and stepped to their door and asked if I could do anything. And they said no. Attorney Knowlton asked her to repeat Lizzie's words about not vomiting. And Alice repeats it, adding Lizzie's words. I wasn't sick enough to vomit, but they were. Knowlton is aware Lizzie testified she vomited also. I think she told me they were better in the morning, and that Mrs. Borden thought that they had been poisoned. And she went over to Dr. Bowen's, and she was going, said she was going over, said she was going over to Dr. Bowen's. Knowlton. Anything about trouble with the t with the tenants or anything of that sort? Alice, she says, I feel afraid sometimes that father has got, has got an enemy. For, she said, he has so much trouble with his men that come to see him. And she told me of a man that came to see him, and she heard him say, she didn't see him, but heard her father say, I don't care to let, to let my property for such business. And she said, the man answered sneeringly, I shouldn't think you would care what you let your property for. And she said, father was mad and ordered him out of the house. She told me of seeing a man run around the house one night when she went home. I had forgotten where she had been, she said. And, you know, the barn has been broken into twice. And I said, oh, well, you know, well, that was somebody after pigeons. There was nothing in there for them to go after but pigeons. Well, she says, they have broken into our house in broad daylight with Emma and Maggie and me there. And I said, I never heard of that before. And she said, Father forbade her telling it. So I asked her about it, and she said it was Mr. Borden's room, what she called her dressing room. She said her things were ransacked, and they took a watch and chain and money and card tickets, and something else I can't remember. And there was a nail left in the keyhole. She didn't know how, she didn't know why that was left. Whether they got, got in or out or with it or what. I asked her if her father did anything about it. And she said he gave it to the police, but they didn't find out anything. And she said father expected that they would catch the thief by the tickets, she remarked, just as if anybody would use those tickets, she said. She said, I feel as if I wanted to sleep with my eyes half open, with one eye open half the time for fear that they will burn the, off, the, the house down over us. She said, I think sometimes, I'm afraid sometimes, that somebody will do something to harm him. He is so discourteous to people. Dr. Bowen came over, Mrs. Borden went over, and Father didn't like it because she was going. 
And she told him she was going, and he says, well, my money should pay for it. She went over to Dr. Bowen, and Dr. Bowen told her, she told him she was afraid they were poisoned, and Dr. Bowen laughed and said, no, there wasn't any poison. And she came back, and Dr. Bowen came over. I was ashamed the way Father treated Dr. Bowen. I was so mortified. And she said after he had gone, Mrs. Borden said she thought it was too bad for him to treat Dr. Bowen so. And he said he didn't want him coming over there that way. Lizzie left Alice's house sometime around 9 o'clock and walked the 300 yards to her home along shadow sidewalks, stepping stones of light, the street lamps leading her way. Her mood was black. So much had gone wrong, and Alice had not been sympathetic to her tales of doom. At least she had planted the seed of imminent danger lurking in the form of an enemy who wished her father harm. As Lizzie approached the warden home, she felt like a prisoner sitting in the gallows. She was trapped now. The sitting room windows were dark. In fact, all the windows watched her through blackened squares. It was not until she unlocked the front door with her key that she saw the glow from the kerosene lamp taught here sitting on the entry hall table. Abby's thoughtful touch to make sure she could see her way when she arrived. Libby knew another one would be burning in the kitchen for Bridget. The murmurings Lizzie heard briefly coming from the room ahead of her suddenly stopped at her entrance. The sitting room was dark, its three occupants conspiring in the soft little kerosene lamp on the hall table. They're in there, talking and plotting, she thought, spots of color coming to her cheeks. She shut the door and triple locked it, as she always did when she was the last one in the night. Without a word of the three people sitting in the shadows of the sitting room, she climbed the stairs, entered her room, and locked the door. Tossing her purse onto her bed, she crouched in the darkness by the fireplace and listened. Lizzie, Lizzie heard Abby enter their bedroom around a quarter to ten that night. Fifteen minutes later, John Morris climbed the stairs and entered the guest room. Lizzie boiled with anger. They had put him in a guest room instead of the attic where he usually stayed. Why? To keep an eye on her? She listened for the sound of a closing door coming from that room, but heard none. Several minutes later, she heard him climbing into bed. He was leaving the bedroom door open. At the same time, John Morse was preparing for bed, opening the shutters and windows of the guest room in the hopes of catching a breeze. Bridget Sullivan was unlocking the back door. It was 10.05. She saw the lamp Abby left for her burning brightly on the kitchen table. She hung her hat and shawl on the pegs lying in the entry wall. The pears Mr. Borden had brought in earlier that morning were still lying on the small table beneath the south kitchen window. The clothes she had ironed earlier that day, from 1.30 to 4.30, hung from a clothes horse near the stove. She would fold them during breakfast tomorrow and leave them on the kitchen table for the family to take to the rooms. With Miss Emma gone, she had less to do. It had given her time that afternoon to go upstairs to the attic for an hour from 4.30 to 5.30 and get a head start on tomorrow's window washing. The house creaked around her as Bridget stood for a moment in the kitchen, looking over things and going over in her mind the things needed for breakfast the next morning. Moonlight spilled in through the south-facing window curtains. It's closely danced with the lace splitting across the wooden floor, the worn floor. Crossing to the table, Bridget picked up the lamp and carried it to the sink room. Opening the icebox, she poured herself a glass of milk and made her way to her room in the sweltering attic. Okay, I'm going to stop there, and uh, tomorrow again, 6.30 p.m., Chapter 10, we're 
the day of the murders. So be sure to tune in. Um, but like I said, I wanted to make up for not reading last week, and I think it worked out. So tomorrow we are going to witness the murders, I guess. The alleged murders. Because who knows what really happened that day. But uh, there you have it. So tomorrow I'll be tomorrow I'll be back at 6.30. 6.30 p.m. Pacific to read to you guys. And hopefully I'll be cooler because I'm going to turn this AC on earlier tomorrow. But anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. I know it's Saturday night. You're probably not even watching. You're out doing your thing with movies and whatever else you're out doing, which is cool with me. Saturday night, right? But I want to thank you to come for coming. And I want to remind you again of the special event we have coming up on January. Uh, January. Ha! Huh, on June 18th. And that is at 7 p.m. Pacific with Nancy Matz, who is going to be doing five-minute readings. And we are only allowing, and this is the other kicker part of it all, is it so, it's such a special event that because we're doing five-minute readings, we're only allowing eight openings. So the sooner you sign up, the better, the, 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 the better it's going to be because the people that sign up for those eight openings are the ones who will get their readings. All right? So it's only eight people that we're going to do this with. We might open it to ten. We'll see how Nancy feels. But right now it's eight people. So head on over there. It's the California Haunts Ghostly Events page. Just type in California Haunts Ghostly Event if you're watching on Facebook. Same thing with if, if you're watching from YouTube and you, you, you have a Facebook, California Haunts Ghostly Events. And then go on from there and find the event. It's right, you know, it's listed on that page. All right, well, I will see you guys tomorrow. Let me uh, cue this up here. Again, thank you guys for coming. And I will see you tomorrow. If you like this show, share it with five people. If you hated this show, <laughs> share it with five people that you don't like. I'm equal opportunity. It's all good. If you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. If you're watching from Facebook, please click the follow button. Because the, the more the merrier. And uh, we're, we're cranking show after show after show out. And they're not all like this. It's uh, different topics and all that good stuff. And uh, I'd really appreciate it. You see that thing running along the bottom? Well, that's because we, uh, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, acts as a nonprofit. You know, everything we do, uh, we do it out of our pockets. Investigators' pockets, my pockets, you name it. All the equipment here to put the show on, mics, lights, cameras, all the good stuff, even the equipment for the paranormal group travel, all that, comes out of our personal pockets. So anything you could do to help us out to keep the show going and keep our group going would be great. That's at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, we do have a Venmo, and that is California Haunts. Anyway, I appreciate it, and I thank you all. I really, really, really sincerely appreciate it. And I thank you all, and I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Have a good rest of your Saturday.